Welcome to This Is America, May 21st, 2022. On this episode, we speak with Kamal Franklin of Community Movement Builders about the struggle to build self-determination and community power in Atlanta in the face of gentrification, police violence, and racialized capitalism. We also discuss the growing fight to defend the Atlanta forest and react to the recent anti-black killing in Buffalo, New York by a white supremacist. All this and more, but first, let's get to the news. Across the so-called United States, people showed solidarity with the Buffalo community, holding marches and gatherings in Oakland, California, Charlottesville, and taking to the streets in New York. Students in Charlottesville, Virginia also organized a walkout. Mutual aid groups have also been working around the clock to help feed people in Buffalo in the wake of the horrific white supremacist attack at a neighborhood grocery store. If you want to support mutual aid programs on the ground, head to Buffalo Community Fridge to support. Holding banners reading Always Punch Nazis and One Love in Southern California, people again rallied and held space at an overpass where neo-Nazis had previously held banners promoting the genocidal Great Replacement Theory. In Boulder, Colorado, people marched against attempts by the local police and politicians to criminalize people sleeping in their cars. In Davis, California, cops off campus dropped massive banners reading Feed the People, Cops Off Campus, and shut down debit machines allowing students to eat for free at a dining hall on campus. A communique released online stated, In solidarity with those who still believe in freedom, in solidarity with those who suffer under the violence of hunger, in solidarity with the principled history of people's free food programs, we are today taking action of liberating the food in this dining hall. Members of the Industrial Workers of the World rallied in Columbia, South Carolina, in solidarity with workers fighting back against union-busting tactics by management. According to The Guardian, Starbucks has fired over 20 union leaders across the U.S. over the past several months as union organizing campaigns have spread across the country. The news comes as Starbucks workers have filed petitions for union elections at more than 250 stores, spanning 35 states in the United States. In Maryland, an anti-abortion center was vandalized with various pro-choice slogans. Banners were also dropped in Los Angeles, California, and in Kenosha, Wisconsin, Tucson, Arizona, and La Jolla, California, students organized walkout in support of reproductive freedom. Various far-right groups also attempted to intimidate pro-choice demonstrators, but were vastly outnumbered in the various demonstrations that took place over the last few weeks. In Los Angeles, as one reporter on Twitter wrote, anti-abortion counter-protesters arrived at a high school and displayed graphic photos. They were made fun of and their signs were stolen by high schoolers. As the Royal Canadian Mounted Police continue to harass indigenous Wet'suwet'en people on their lands, solidarity actions continue against the coastal gas leak pipeline. In Montreal, people covered a branch of the Royal Bank of Canada with red paint. A communique posted online to Montreal Counter Info stated, In Montreal on Friday on May 13th, we decorated an RBC branch in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en land defenders. We used red paint like the color of blood staining the bank's hands. 
Another RBC bank was also targeted with the communique reading, RBC is a dirty bank that fuels the climate crisis and global injustice. In solidarity, we visited the bank as a little reminder. The fight to save the Atlanta forest from both the construction of a massive police counterinsurgency training center and the expansion of a movie studio continues. Since our last episode, police have made several attempts to invade the forest and destroy structures made by those defending the land, making several arrests on Tuesday, May 17th. Since then, police have made another attempt to enter in the forest on Friday, May 20th, however no arrests were made. Solidarity actions remain ongoing. According to a communique posted to scenes from the Atlanta forest, On the evening of May 10th I smashed seven windows at the office building where the northeast offices of Atlas are located in Albany, New York. I also tagged, Atlas, stop destroying the Atlanta forest. Destroying hundreds of acres of forest during the sixth greatest mass extinction of species to build a police training facility following one of the largest anti-police uprisings in decades is fucking disgusting. With this vandalism I urge Atlas to do the right thing and drop any contracts with Brassfield and Gorey and the Cop City Project. Another action reported about a protest on scenes from the Atlanta Forest stated, On May 11th, 30 to 40 people visited the home of Keith Leonard Johnson Jr. Keith is the Eastern Regional President of Brassfield and Gorey, B&G. B&G are the current general contractor for the Atlanta Police Foundation's Cop City project in southeast Atlanta. The low barrier fencing did not seem to deter assembled protesters from approaching the home directly in order to deliver flyers to junior neighbors did not seem overly concerned with the assembled group when they approached the four-building estate set back from the road. Brassfield and Gorey will eventually drop the Cop City contract. Anonymous groups are developing new methods for disincentivizing the project. A report from Alabama read, On the morning of the 13th, the windows and glass doors to the Brassfield and Gorey corporate HQ in Birmingham, Al were smashed. The words drop Cop City or else were spray-painted on the windows. Another communique from Georgia read, Early Monday morning a home associated with Dodd Drilling, LLC was painted with slogans including Dodd Drilling Stay Out, Stop Cop City, and Drop APD. From Lane County in Oregon. Over the past month or so many construction vehicles, lost count, and so-called Lane County had their windows smashed in. Many more will be smashed in the future. These actions are being done in solidarity with forest defenders and so-called Atlanta GA. Finally, a communique posted to scenes from the Atlanta forest from Minneapolis stated, We smashed up the windows of the Bank of America on Hennepin Avenue in Minneapolis, and painted the front to redefund Cop City. Our attack was in solidarity with those arrested in the recent raid on the forest, and we pray for the safe return of our comrades and a continuation of the fight for life against Cop City and Hollywood dystopia. Bank of America will need to end their sponsorship of the Atlanta Police Foundation or they will continue to be under threat from our friends across the so-called United States. A toast to the Knights we gave them hell. And now for some upcoming events. From May 20th to the 22nd, Woodbine and Symbiosis are hosting a regional gathering. On May 21st, there is a march against anti-LGBTQ and anti-abortion rally in Boulder, Colorado. There is a talk at the Landing Strip in Minneapolis on mutual aid mass politics in the spirit of May 28th. The Civil Liberties Defense Center is hosting an online Know Your Rights training on May 26th. On May 28th at the Landing Strip in Minneapolis, there's a BBQ celebration 
on the two-year anniversary of the George Floyd Uprising. The Bay Area Anarchist Book Fair in Oakland takes place on June 5th. From June 25th through the 26th, there is the Autonomous Tenants Union Network Convention in Los Angeles. On July 29th through the 30th, there is the Dual Power Gathering. On August 6th through the 7th, there is the Montreal Anarchist Book Fair. From August 13th through the 21st, there is the Anarchist Summer School put on by the Institute for Advanced Troublemaking. From September 10th through the 11th, there is the New York Anarchist Book Fair. On September 18th in Southern California, there is a Pushing Down the Walls event benefiting political prisoners. And finally, if you value what's going down as a revolutionary autonomous media resource in times of crisis and you have the means, please go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop. And that's itsgoingdown.org slash shop and help us grow. You can sign up to become a monthly supporter or give us a one-time donation. You can follow the podcast, check out our RSS feed, follow us on whatever podcast platform you prefer, listen to us on the radio, tell a friend about us, Follow us on social media like Twitter, Instagram, and Mastodon. And finally, if you enjoyed this show, check out other amazing content on the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. That's going to do it for us. Enjoy the interviews and the discussion, and we will see you soon. Our time to shine. put your foot down. Go put your foot down. New dance, 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 go put your foot down. It's our time to shine. I lean to the left, always to the left. Put my foot down as I take another step. Put my foot down, can't take no more shit. Put your foot down if you're sick of it. Sick of all fights, sick of alternative. Okay, once again, we're back for another week. There's a lot going on, as always. Uh, we have a very special guest. Do you just want to introduce yourself real quick? Sure. My name is Kamal Franklin. I'm a community organizer with an organization that I founded named Community Movement Builders that does grassroots organizing, particularly in southwest uh, Atlanta, but not exclusively. Uh, we work around the issues of gentrification and police misconduct, and we also do what we call sustainability work which means uh, that we develop cooperatives. We have a sustainability fund that we give to keep people in the neighborhoods, particularly uh, uh, black residents who are working class and poor, who we feel are being pushed out of Atlanta. Um, and we also do mutual aid, what we uh, call, as part of our liberation programs, I should say, where we provide food and toiletries to uh, people in need throughout the neighborhood. And we encourage people to go to communitymovementbuilders.org, also, you, of course, have active social media accounts. We'll, of course, link those in our show notes if you want to learn more. 
you know, this week we're going to be talking about what's going on in Atlanta directly with the resistance to the Cop City project, which is extremely inspiring from what we're seeing. But unfortunately, we're also going to be talking about the tragedy that unfolded in uh, Buffalo with the recent anti-black white supremacist shooting that occurred uh, a couple days ago. But just to kind of get us started to talk about what's happening in Atlanta, just for those of us that are not from the city, maybe not know very much about Atlanta, can you just talk about sort of the conditions that you all are organizing around and, and what affects the people, the folks that you're working with? Sure. Um, so, you know, Atlanta has been a predominantly black city for probably 50 or 60 years. Um, and over time, you know, probably 30, 40 years ago, Let's just say there was uh, this kind of a, a deal struck between uh, civil rights leaders in Atlanta and the general, let's say, economic elite, which was mostly white and still continues to be white in Atlanta. And that deal was basically that, it, you know, civil rights action could take place across other areas of the country. And uh, the white economic leaders would make sure that the political space was open enough so that a black majority could actually uh, take control through the voting process, obviously, um, and that wouldn't be crushed or interfered with as it had been, even though the tide was turning, of course, but as folks were seeing. And so this established a long history, again, in the late 1970s, when Maynard Jackson was the first elected uh, black mayor of black leadership that was running Atlanta. Um, and they became uh, the majority in the city council, so forth and so on. Uh, and, and the sort of a narrative was pushed of Atlanta as being sort of a black Mecca, a place where uh, black folks could come and find their dreams and uh, and really sort of live, let's uh, uh, just say, a full life that they couldn't live in some other places. Uh, but that dream really turned out to be a, a myth, right, a, a misnomer. So it's a good marketing plan. But what's really happening in Atlanta and what's been happening under black leadership uh, political leadership and white economic control is that slowly the city has been uh, steadily remaining, let's say, first of all, a city in which the ability to get out of poverty has been one of um, the worst in the country in terms of any statistical category that you can look at. Poverty rates, social mobility, education rates, unemployment, um, all of those things continue to be stacked up uh, against the larger black population. Uh, but during the same time, what has happened is that basically this black leadership um, has basically tried to empty the city out of poor people, particularly poor black people, working class black people, and has turned the city over to be a playground for elite interest, uh, mostly white elite interest, but not exclusively such. And so um, all that to say is that people who are working class and poor and what used to be the majority black population is being gentrified out of Atlanta. Uh, folks are struggling around jobs and homelessness. And a response by the city of Atlanta is to push those folks out and to continue to make sure that developers and corporations have their way in terms of the city planning and what happens in Atlanta. Yeah, and this is playing itself out in the Cop City project as well. One of the major developers is this movie studio that's developed I think Jumanji and Venom, a couple other big movies people may have heard of, they're trying to expand into the forest as well. And that connects to a lot of what you're talking about, I believe. Basically, the motto of Atlanta is that we're open for business. 
And what that means is that uh, for the commercial property here is undertaxed significantly, which means there's lower tax collection. And the reason it's undertaxed is because corporations and developers basically have used their influence to demand that taxation here is unfair and they've gotten away, gotten their way because Atlanta politicians, again, have decided that corporate development and development that is um, geared towards what corporations say is good for Atlanta is the type of development that they agree with. And that's probably because, you know, they get access to resources, they get access to certain elite people, they feel like they're part of the elite. But at the same time, this is happening. Again, not only are, are important uh, are wildlife areas being cut out, but working class and poor people are being pushed out of the city in record numbers. In fact, the last census, census has shown that Atlanta has gone from a majority black city to one which is now 49 to 48%. As folks also know, throughout the recent history of Atlanta, all public housing um, has been destroyed uh, and only mixed-use housing really gets built here at all that's supposed to be affordable. Homeless people were paid to leave Atlanta and not to come back. Uh, shelters have been uh, demolished and closed, particularly in the downtown Atlanta area. So anything that has to do with real resources uh, to make sure, again, that people who are um, working class people can live and strive in Atlanta has been stripped away from them. One of the questions I have around this, and this I think has a lot to do with you know, living in a city with somewhat similar dynamics uh, on these levels, but you know, there's kind of this discussion always when local resistance kind of builds up about its relationship to, uh, I'll just name it, Democratic Party political machines, right? Mm-hmm. Which Atlanta very much is run by one of those. The city I live in is run, is run by one of these. I know where I live, we see a lot of these same liberal activists end up with positions in like city hall or on committees and things like this in exchange for no longer organizing in the streets. And so are you seeing dynamics like that in Atlanta and how are you sort of handling those? No, I'm glad you said that and, 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 and put that on the table because, uh, you know, the chief, um, uh, partners, uh, you know, I mentioned, uh, black elected officials and I should have said black Democrat elected officials because what you described, whether or not the official is black or white, is the tale of urban areas throughout the country where Democratic leadership, which claims, again, we don't expect anything from a Republican or right wing leadership. But Democratic leadership makes the overt claim that it is fighting for working class, poor people, that it is trying to set an agenda which is supposed to support these folks. And time and time again, what happens in these cities is that the Democratic elite sides again with this it's not only its local elite um it's the the local developers the local corporations but they fight each other to get large fortune 500 corporations to set up base in their cities and that fight usually involves again the lowering and or or zeroing out of tax rates for some time period in order to build the taking of land and property um from working class or poor neighborhoods the redesigning of areas of urban areas that are ex- that exclude the input of people who work there. And as you stated, it is done a lot of times with the support of the so-called civil rights establishment or activist establishment, which largely claims to be fighting on behalf of these same people. So over and over again, the same groups 
that claim that they have a ongoing concern for poor people, for black people, for working class people, um, who over and over again say that their mission is to do something for these folks. They cut deals with the politicians and they cut and they become the politicians and they cut deals with the elite to continually send the same message, which is that if you have money, you can play in these cities. And if you don't, we don't see a future for you. Um, and that and by not having a future, you are either pushed out of the city or you're pushed into jails by over arrest and over policing, um, which leads a lot of times to the displacement and gentrification that we've been talking about. I guess one of the big questions, and this is mostly due to me not having a lot of knowledge of what happens in Atlanta. I live very much in the north, very far north. Um, but I guess the big question is, what are the economic drivers behind this, right? So what are the big industries in town? How are they sort of relating to this political class? And and how is that impacting not only the fight around Cop City, but also general political dynamics in Atlanta, kind of, you know, dynamics of political empowerment, but also... Um, fights against the police. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think in Atlanta, you mentioned earlier, there's a burgeoning um, movie industry here that plays a big role in city politics. There's Coca-Cola um, that plays a big role still, even though it's not as big as it used to be, but it plays a big role in city politics. There are other Fortune 500 companies like AT&T. Um, there's the, the, the development class. So developers here basically have carte blanche to uh, basically decide on their huge new projects, which are usually expensive condos, um, expensive uh, hotels, uh, or whole areas, which are be- become shopping districts. Um, and so those folks have overwhelming sway. I don't think it's, you know, it's that different than I'm originally from New York. And so I don't think the dynamics um, of who the elite are are that different from city to city. Um, I think in Atlanta, you know, and again, this is may not be unique to um, uh, this. This actually may be somewhat unique to Atlanta, but not exclusively, is that Atlanta claims to be, again, a city that was built by and built for in some ways uh, for for black folks to come live out their dream. And at one point, you know, I, I said for the most part, that dream was never accessible or true. But if there was a time where Atlanta at least had housing stock that was available uh, a market price in housing for both renting um, and ownership, which was reasonable and which people could afford to live here. And then slowly, you know, particularly after the Olympics, but over, I would say, a, a 20 to 30 year span, um, that has changed dramatically because of the push by this this uh, uh, economic elite, again, with the political elite to make Atlanta a playground for the rich. I just kind of wanted to pivot now and talk specifically about the uh, the Cop City project. Curious to hear your thoughts on the talking points that are coming out of the police. One of the things they've been saying is that they need this new facility because the old one is, quote, moldy, and also that they're having a problem hiring new officers. They did a press conference the other day when they were arresting folks in the forest, and they basically said, like, we need this new training facility in order to train our officers so we can have police out there to do, you know, great things. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think about a year ago, again, the police and the uh, and the political class, particularly Democrats, decided that they need to fight back against the narrative that was happening over the time period in which after the George Floyd murder took place. 
And after the George Floyd murder took place and there was huge amounts of people on the street, uh, people who made demands around defunding the police, abolishing the police, pushing back against police tactics, trying to find alternatives to calling the police in certain situations that would lead to less uh, community uh, um, uh, impact or contact with the police. Uh, that narrative, although it never, you know, it, it, it gained strength and it got coverage, but it never really forced the defunding of, of police agencies across the country. But I think approximately about a year ago, uh, the police have tried to reseize the narrative and the political class has joined with them um, and to put out the idea that this uh, this uh, post-COVID crime wave, and we all know no, we're not really in post-COVID, but this uh, crime wave is taking place, that the police were misunderstood, uh, maligned, mischaracterized. And what we do is need to, as Joe Biden has recently said, not defund the police, but fund the police even more. So the idea of Cop City and the idea that's being pushed by the police and the Atlanta Police Foundation, and again, the, uh, the, the politicians, is that somehow this 90 million uh, facility is supposed to do something about crime right now. And so we know that that's complete lunacy because it'll take three to five years at the very least to build uh, uh, a development of this size. So it has nothing to do with fighting crime. This is basically giving the police a new toy that they can play with to do a couple of things. One is definitely to train in tactics, but those tactics that they want to train in are really about how to control and put down social justice organizing movements, radical movements, movements that are out in the street, movements that are making demands. Uh, secondly, it's just another training facility to invite other police to come down and train. Because again, this once this facility is built, or at least the, the attempt to build it, this will be the largest training facility in the nation. So there, Atlanta is spotlighting itself to be the, the place where police from around the country and internationally, um, because of the ties that the Atlanta police have with Israel, to come down to Atlanta and train together on what we would consider to be, what they would consider to be, I would say, counterinsurgency tactics. Um, and as we know, when these tactics get deployed, they lead to over-arrest, they lead to uh, harsh policing, they lead to filling up jails, they lead to filling up prisons, uh, but they don't lead to doing anything about crime. And there's no, there's no statistical analysis that has ever been accepted that shows that having more police is the reason why crime goes down or crime goes up. There's never been a statistical correlation that's been made of that. But yet again, elected officials and, of course, the police themselves and their unions and their foundations uh, push the narrative that it's only through the police that will make us safer. So we think the idea behind Cop City um, is one that, that gives the police some reward uh, for them sticking through here in Atlanta, uh, the uprisings that happened post George Floyd. Here we had a brother named Rashad Brooks who was killed by the police, uh, shot in the back um, at a Wendy's, and there were mass demonstrations in the streets in Atlanta. Um, and so, again, we think this is a, a basically giving the cops a new toy to play with. If they're so interested in having a police facility and they have $90 million that they've collected through the Atlanta Police Foundation, then there's no reason they couldn't use that same, those same resources to repair the, 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 the facility that they already have 
as opposed to building a brand new one that will tear down a hundred acres of forest land to do so. Yeah, it sounds very much like a like a school of the Americas type situation. Mm-hmm. You're talking about bringing so many people in. Can you talk a little bit more about the connection to the state of Israel? And I mean, that's well known that the police go there and train, but just specifically Atlanta. Yeah, Atlanta and Israeli police have a um, a special connection and a special program where Israeli uh, police or Israeli forces come to Atlanta and actually train police in Atlanta in arrest tactics, in, in, in what they would call counterinsurgency tactics, so tactics for mass demonstrations. And so the same tactics that they use uh, in uh, against Palestinians, they use against communities here um, who are also fighting for their rights, fighting for their preservation, just as Palestinians are. And so the connection is that two armed camps um, connect to each other on a level of the civilians or other or, or people who are non-police who are othered, right? Even if in, in, in Palestine, they are the indigenous people. And here in the United States, it's mostly poor working class black folks who are targeted and not exclusively. Um, that the connection is that those folks are worthy of being targeted and that they see a common alliance to do this. And again, as I, as you know, I continually point out, uh, this is in a so-called progressive, democratically run black city that has decided to team up with basically an apartheid state uh, in order to conduct uh, 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 training together to basically um, uh, put down the masses of people if they organize for their rights. I know in the recent past, in the last couple of days, there's been a lot of news sort of coming out of the campaign. Um, there were a bunch of arrests in front of the offices of one of the construction companies, the cops went into the woods, I think, yesterday. Um, as we're recording this, it would, it would be yesterday. Um, there were a number of arrests there um, during that. But I think it's it's a little bit difficult for some of us, myself included, to sort of imagine what resistance in a wooded area in the middle of a city is like, uh, because the dynamics around that are very, very different. And so maybe uh, just speaking briefly about sort of what is the tactical situation? What is going on? How is this really different from, you know, some of the fierceness of the uprising, which was very fierce in Atlanta? Um, and, and sort of how are you kind of seeing some of this stuff developing and playing out? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, um, since the passing by the city council, there was once a coalition of groups that were fighting on a common front, which was to stop city council from passing uh, the agreement to allow the city to lease to the police foundation for $10 a year for 99 years, this forest land and to let them, uh, basically strip it out in order to build their cop city. And so, uh, that coalition was lined up to try to stop this from happening. At first, the city council had decided, uh, they didn't even, they weren't even going to vote on this. And they thought they were going to be able to pass this without a vote. And so with the pressure that these organizations put, we did win over some city council uh, members and some city council members abstained. But still, it passed. And the mayor, both the past mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms, and the current mayor, Andre Dickinson, both supported Cop City. And so the uh, the organizations then went into, uh, uh, let's say, uh, different tactics, but remained united. And part of those tactics was going directly into the forest um, uh, and setting up um, uh, uh, basically 
Uh, people started at first, you know, going during the days and checking it out, but basically set up a camp eventually where folks started building tree houses. Uh, they started living in the forest. People from out of town started coming, would spend a few days in the forest. Other groups concentrated on rallies and demonstrations at City Hall, uh, started focusing on targeting corporations who were funding Cop City. Because remember, the $90 million that the Atlanta Foundation has to build this was done through private uh, private resources. And so places like Coca-Cola, AT&T, uh, the AUC Center, basically the, uh, the Black Colleges, Morehouse and Spelman, uh, all those entities have been targeted and will be targeted by different folks here. Um, and so we still work in coalition with each other, but now we've taken on different areas of work to continue to try to fight this. And I should also mention that in the forest, people are actually working with the Muskegee uh, Nation, which are the original owners of the land, uh, who some of which have said that they want to come back to reclaim their land to stop it from being used for these purposes, which they feel they, they historically, obviously, that the land was stolen and they feel like the land should not be used for those. And so some of this, uh, some of this nation, some people within the nation are coming back to Atlanta to also do work against stopping Cop City. Um, and so we just finished a week of action which I would say the organization Defend Atlanta Forest took a really strong lead in, in creating a week of action. Our organization, other organizations participated and did various demonstrations. We did one in front of AT&T, which went off without any arrest. And then there was a second rally a few days afterwards that the police arrested 17 people after the rally claiming that folks were uh, marching in the street and they had videotape of them doing that, even though we know for sure that they randomly rounded up people, in some cases have already gotten thrown out of court. And then the following day, like you said, uh, about a, a day or so ago from when this podcast will probably air or be recorded, uh, the police actually went to the forest, uh, arrested approximately seven to nine people, if I'm not mistaken, uh, about five or six um, uh, tree houses were destroyed. One tree house remained uh, because somebody was still in that tree house when they came. And uh, I actually chased people further in the forest. And lastly, I'll say the narrative that a lot of the mainstream or corporate news channels are putting out is that the police were pelted with rocks and a Molotov cocktail was thrown at them. So they're not talking about the fact that the police decided to tear down an encampment uh, to arrest people with rough tactics, um, to put people's lives in danger. Uh, instead, again, it's the police narrative that's trying to dominate or being told, which will get into people's mind that, you know, these activists shouldn't be doing this anyway. Yeah, the other talking point they are pushing uh, is that a lot of the people they're arresting are, quote, from out of town. This comes like a day after... From what we saw online, there was a collection of various uh, preschool kids that literally organized a march and demonstration <laughs> through the streets. Uh, so it's clear that there is, you know, broad local opposition. So I'm just curious your thoughts on this refrain that we've heard before of, you know, outside agitators. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're correct that there has been broad support to stop Cop City from being built. So when we were in the initial phase of the campaign, uh, and we had more people call in. I guess it's the second most votes ever. Uh, only uh, the only thing that had more call-ins against 
was when well, more call-ins to the city council was when we were trying to pass a a, a legislative bill on uh, on trying to support Rashad Brooks after his killing here in Atlanta. Other than that, this received, if I remember correctly, over 700 um, calls. Over 80% were against Cop City. Uh, there were polls taken at the time that showed the majority population in Atlanta was opposed to Cop City. Neighborhood associations were passing resolutions saying they were opposed. But yet the elected officials ignored all of that, ignored all of that, uh, and still decided to, to vote for uh, creating this cop city. Again, as a gift to the police, a gift to the police union, a, a gift to the police foundation. So they didn't care at all what the majority population in Atlanta thought about this. And we've seen it time and time again where not only is the majority population ignored, but the use of outside agitators becomes the language of the political elite to try to make it sound like like the people in Atlanta are not smart enough to know what they're opposed to. Um, and so that's just, a, uh, a again, a talking point that they put out there because what they don't want is to is to have a real narrative put out that most of Atlanta is against the building of Cop City and they've decided to ignore it um, and to build it anyway at the behest of satisfying the police and the police unions. Yeah, and also the ultimate irony, the fact that they're working with, they said, the FBI, various law enforcement agencies from across the region. <laughs> so, I mean, they're bringing in their own outside agitators for this. For them, there's never a problem with sort of doubling and tripling down with the number of police agencies that get involved in deciding again to criminalize the general population for saying we're against this we don't want this done in our name we don't want this facility built um and instead of listening uh they use again corporate media to put out a message or to support their message that again the police need these facilities uh that these agitators these are outside agitators um that these people are engaged in violent tactics and so forth uh, but again, people time and time again have stated that they don't support the building of this facility. They don't support the cutting down of the forest. Um, if the police say they need a training center, they have one. And if they have private funding, just repair the center that they have, as opposed to uh, 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 destroying, again, 100 acres of forest, particularly during this time period where climate disaster is actually looming and around the corner. But instead of doing that, they decided they wanted to fulfill the, the desires of, of the police and the, and, the, and the police unions and to make this uh, uh, some gift wrap toy that they present to them. Well, before we transition, is there anything else you want to say on the fight against Cop City? I guess one other question would be, what happens now? And for those of us that are outside of Atlanta, what can we do in solidarity and to help the struggle? I, mean, I think what happens now is that we see that, this, that we've gotten the city's attention again. Um, they thought because they passed this resolution or they passed this legislation last year that this was a done deal and that we as organizers would slip, uh, simply just slip away and find some other issue to work on and consider this a loss. But instead, what we did was that we regrouped and said that the city council does not have the final say on what happens with the building of this project, that the people themselves will still have the final say and that we will continue to challenge corporations we will continue to challenge the city and we're going to challenge the police themselves on their tactics and their arrest methods 
and their over-policing of our communities. Um, so we think that people can offer a great deal of support, not only via social media. Um, there's obviously different ways. If you uh, look up Cop City where you can uh, give some donations, you can give donations to the Atlanta Bail Fund, who is collecting resources for the uh, upwards of 25 to 30 people who've been arrested over the last few days. Um, and, you know, people can even come down and support because we like outside agitators um, to come down and support and spend a couple of days because we're going to rebuild um, in the forest uh, because we don't think that this is over and we're not letting the city make the uh, make the agenda for what's going to happen next around this fight. So the one other question I have, and this this has to do with organizing models. So one of the things that community movement builders is doing is a lot of mutual aid work, right? And a lot of sort of like building cooperative enterprises, kind of working on community autonomy work. Um, how is that organizing, which y'all have been doing for a long time, um, sort of blending into this campaign? And, and what are you seeing as kind of the crossovers? Um, I ask this because I think a lot of times there's this sort of artificial separation that gets drawn mm -hmm. between sort of direct action campaigns and community organizing work. And so I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how those uh, fundamentally interact. Yeah, I mean, we think they're directly related in terms of the work that we do. Uh, so we don't believe in single issue organizing. You know, we believe that our our issues are all connected, um, that uh, uh, based on how this system is run, um, that the oppression that we face is not only via the police, uh, it is via the economic system, it is via the political system, and that our responses can't be just to one part of it, but we must do everything that we can to show people that this capitalist model of development is nothing but harm for our community and our people, and that having these elites in control of economic and political uh, space means that they get to decide for us how our lives look, what opportunities we have, what we have control over, um, and that leaves us powerless and at the whim of other folks. So when we build cooperatives, one cooperative we're building is a security cooperative. And that security cooperative is currently engaged in doing what we call cop watches and safety walks slash safety patrols. And so what that means is that we go into the neighborhoods, uh, we give out know your rights information, we watch the police in the neighborhood, in the community. Uh, but we actually try to de-escalate any incidents that we see happening in the community so that before it reaches the level of anybody thinking they need to call the police, we can do something to squash it. We're working on um, alternatives to in incarceration models. Uh, we're working on mediation models so that we can create some separate systems than the ones that exist so that we can resolve some of these issues and not have to have make sure that people don't get police records for, relatively speaking, minor acts, which will impact their whole lives. Uh, and at the same time, we use these models to politicize people um, of all the things that I just said that if you don't control the institutions, the, 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 the things that have political control over you in your neighborhood, um, then basically someone else controls your livelihood, your ability to sustain yourself, uh, even your life chances of survival. And so it's up to the community to politicize itself and to organize itself to make not only make demands on the city, but to either create uh, new enterprises or new institutions that they control or quite frankly, to destroy or stop institutions uh, that mean nothing but harm to it. You know, as we all know, uh, in the days leading up to recording um, to recording this episode, there was a um, 
a mass shooting that happened in Buffalo at a Topps grocery store um, where I think 10 people were killed and 13 uh, total shot. Um, the killer was a white supremacist. Um, we were talking before we were recording that um, the fact that the killer was a white supremacist is not particularly surprising. The part that is was a bit uh, on the nose, I think, for some some of us that were following this event was when you read the manifesto. There isn't much in that manifesto that really separates what this person was saying from mainstream MAGA Trumpian political policy, right? And sort of political rhetoric. Um, and a lot of what we talked about on this show, you know, over the years has been about how um, the defeat of the alt-right in the streets um, was happening simultaneously with an attempt of the far right to kind of very directly influence political discourse and kind of grow their presence within within the Republican Party, which has been relatively successful. Um, so there are a number of things which which kind of come up here. Um, and I know you're down in Georgia, right, where some of the, the dynamics around uh, specifically MAGA type political rhetoric is uh, particularly fraught and conflictual. Um, but how are you all seeing this sort of um, this crossover, right, this kind of bleed over? Um, how are we kind of looking at how that works and how are we seeing that kind of play out in situations like this um, as we go forward? Remember, there's also another shooting in California, which had um, different motivations. But the roommate of the shooter was a known white nationalist from the Bay Area originally uh, who had moved down to, to Orange County. So. Yeah, I guess, how are we sort of seeing this kind of bleed over and and this sort of uh, this influence and, and how is this sort of functioning in in sort of the view of the people on the show right now? You're listening to It's Going Down, part of the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. Follow us online at itsgoingdown.org and on Twitter at IGD underscore news. If you like and appreciate this podcast, go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop and give us a one-time donation. Sign up to donate monthly or donate through Bitcoin. Again, that's itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support. And now, back to the show. Yeah, I mean, like you said, there's really really no major differences between sort of the white supremacist view that, that elites are concocting this you know, galactic conspiracy to replace white people quote, in their homelands with, you know, the Tucker Carlson version, which it's the Democrats and the, the globalists and the Marxists, which is essentially the same conspiracy, just with different, you know, monikers uh, to replace, quote, I love this legacy Americans to change elections and stuff like that. I mean, it's literally the same conspiracy theory. And it was interesting, um, you know, since the shooting Tucker Carlson, now basically his his way of kind of moving aside from the allegations is to basically say like this person was, you know, mentally unstable. He's not part of any movement, which is just completely laughable. You know, his 180 page document is in fact, not a manifesto. We were saying before we started recording, literally the word manifesto is written in that manifesto four times. He physically refers to it as a manifesto. I mean, it's so clear that, 
you know, this is part of a larger trajectory. He says that he was inspired by the Christchurch uh, massacre that took place in New Zealand in 2019, where 51 people were horribly killed in a similar fashion over a live stream. Uh, white supremacists with connections to established white nationalist groups like Generation Identity in Europe went and can, carried out a shooting in two different mosques. You know, I was thinking about that massacre a couple years ago, and within that manifesto, the Christchurch shooter mentioned Trump and talked about him as a symbol of white identity. And Trump just totally blew it off at the time and said, like, oh, we don't even have a white supremacy problem. I mean, just just the fact that someone could do something that that horrific and then like mention a sitting president, I feel like we haven't even really kind of like wrapped our minds around that. Well, yeah, I mean, this is the thing that that keeps coming up for me as I'm thinking about what happened in Buffalo, um, and that is that you know we've we've talked um, extensively on this show, I think, over the last couple of years, very specifically about. Uh, right-wing vigilante groups and how right-wing vigilante groups really are operating sort of in this mode of trying to defend what they view as the real America or the kind of ideal American state from these kind of, you know, outside forces or whatever. Um, but there was still in some way at that point, this kind of separation that existed in the sense that within kind of, you know, the mainstream Republican party, they were at least on the surface kind of, disavowing the idea that people should do that, even if they were supporting the people that individually were getting arrested or caught or like people like Kyle Rittenhouse, people who murdered other people in the context of doing this. But what we're seeing sort of in Buffalo, I think, is kind of the next step in that process, right? In that we're watching the building, I think, and this is something which is really, really disturbing, something which I'm, tr I'm trying to think through a lot right now, but we're watching the building of a kind of dynamic, right? Almost a sort of cyclical dynamic in which you get kind of political rhetoric from someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene. It filters down into the online world on things like 4chan, stuff like that, pops up again on Tucker Carlson, and then becomes motivation for someone to do a thing like this. And in that cycle, what happens is that the distance between say, someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who very much, for as sad as this sounds, is a mainstream politician at this point, um, and someone like the shooter in Buffalo, the political distance there just doesn't exist. That's really upsetting in the sense that what Buffalo seems to represent, if that's true, is this kind of um, armed imposition of a certain kind of what is already deeply authoritarian politics. Um and I think one of the things I'm struggling with starting to understand is like sort of our mode of engagement with the right wing has shifted, um, not just since Trump left office, but I would say kind of since the alt right stopped being a major force on the streets, our kind of relationship to that has shifted. Um, but what do you all see as kind of ways to discuss how this is happening, ways to understand what is going on and it may be ways to kind of at least begin to gain a toehold into figuring out how to respond to a dynamic like that. You know, I think what we're seeing now over the last, um, a little longer than Trump, like, you know, I would say since the Obama, uh, in particular, since the first Obama election, considering that Obama was a moderate, uh, at best, 
but I think what it's brought out is a a larger white fear, and you know the part of that manifesto was the white replacement theory um, that uh, that white folks, because of the demographic shifts, are quote unquote losing their country. And I think the Republican elites have always been uh, uh, since they became the dominant white party post the civil rights movement. Um, where, uh, particularly whites in the South, working class whites in the South left the Democrats, which at one point was the over white supremacist party to join the Republicans who decided to take that mantle. Um, I think what you've seen is sort of a reemergence of over white supremacy politics playing a role in the larger political system. So I don't think it's ever went away. I don't think it's ever not been there. But I think the level of it is we're returning back to a time when the, the Klan would march in D.C. in the thousands, uh, where you had presidents like Woodrow Wilson screening uh, Birth of a Nation and talking about how it was uh, uh, an act, a tragedy, a tragic film, because it was true uh, in terms of the racism and the portrayal of black characters and the Klan as the white savior. Um, and so I think you have now is is. With that uh, nervousness around the larger white population, um, which has always accepted white supremacy, even if it didn't have a clear, if they clearly didn't have a, a, a giant economic advantage uh, because they, too, were pushed down by elites. At least they had some economic advantage and they could always tell themselves whether well, or not black. They would use other words, but they would say they are not black. Um, I think that reemergence is now being coddled, used, um, and is part and parcel part of the larger Republican game plan uh, and the ideology that they, a lot of them, agree with uh, is that white folks in general, uh, not exclusively, but in general, are now in a fight to keep their country. And I think, I don't like to use the word radicalized, but I think it's um, uh, uh, it's made other folks on the ground far more willing, particularly in a society that has so much access to guns and which mass shootings and killings racialized um, have always been a part of the American um, um, uh, uh, culture, let's say, that it has brought it to a point where uh, these folks have decided that the way to keep their country is to not only engage in mass shootings, to stop immigration, uh, to blame black folks, to even blame Jewish folks. Uh, but it's across the board, a spectrum of the politics that's taking place. And again, not only in America, but of course, Europe, as the fear of immigration rises, which are usually based on the wars that, that Europeans have started anyway in other countries that people are trying to escape. So I, I just, so I think this is a general trend that we're in. I don't know where it goes. Um, I just think we're in a very dangerous time. Uh, and I don't think that the Democratic Party, which is this wants to keep the elite, uh, well, wants to keep the game going, has any answers for us either. So I just think this is a very dangerous time um, for everyone in America. And I don't see us uh, not exiting this time uh, soon without more uh, unfortunate acts of violence. And so my, you know, my last thing on this part is is, is that people on the ground should be prepared to defend themselves, and I'm, you know, I'm sorry to say it like that, because I don't expect the cavalry to come in and save the day. Um, I think people, I, I think this, these type of actions, as despicable as they are, despicable as they are, 
Um, there's not going to be any gun control legislation. So people are going to have access to this weapons, going to have access to this ideology. And these type of incidents will continue to happen in this country. Yeah, I mean, you, you brought up gun control. I mean, this individual that's uh, charged with the the shooting literally threatened to, like, what, shoot up their school or something like that? And, you know, a lot of people were saying that, you know, they weren't put on any sort of red flag laws. You know, they didn't have their guns taken away or anything like that. You know, lo and behold, you know, here they carried out the shooting. They even went to the the place, you know, I think it was like a month before and, and cased the area, talked to people on the ground, um, you know, and they posted up online on Discord their entire plans for what they wanted to do. They even talked about, you know, where they were going to go and and the kind of things they were going to engage in. And, you know, they weren't swept up in any white identity extremist program or any sort of counterintelligence uh, operation, of course. To your question, though, I think that we can't divorce these kind of like uh, shootings with the push that we saw on January 6th to take back, you know, quote, the stolen election. And, of course, how is it stolen with these fraudulent votes, quote unquote, from people that aren't American, you know, I mean, other people were saying we're going to continue to see that, you know, that is the de facto position now of the Republican Party. And I don't think the Democrats have an answer for it, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think the Democrats have it. I think the Democrats during time of strife uh, themselves tilt moderate, right? They don't tilt left. They don't say let's expand um, health care or uh, they don't fight around canceling student debt. They don't think of anything big that's going to empower people or bring some sort of economic worth to make people believe that they are anything different. They're busy trying to hold the center together, which means at times capitulating to right wing demands um, so they can uh, from what they see, they can peel off enough of a white moderate vote to keep themselves in power because their belief system is that people farther to the left or black or Latinos or other folks of color don't have any other place to go to. One point I wanted to make, um, you know, I'm curious to get your all's thoughts about Biden's speech, but he went to Buffalo the other day and um, <laughs> again, he's just really hard to watch. He, he just like trails off. I mean, it's almost, it's almost worse than Trump. Um, you know, he mentioned he started off by basically trying to compare his own situation with what people in Buffalo were going through. Um, he talked about how great he was because he decided to run for president because of what happened in Charlottesville. Uh, and then, and then he made this point, which I thought was really telling where he basically can talk about passing the crime bill in the nineties as sort of this progressive push to like stop things like what happened in Buffalo. And I think that one of the roles for revolutionary groups is that we have to point out too, that like the structural white supremacy, that the Democrats are carrying out and operating day in, day out is killing people as well. I just think we need to keep that in mind because I think there's a right now everybody's kind of centering around Fox News and Tucker Carlson, which I think is good. I mean, like, for instance, right now, uh, you know, Stephen Miller, who under the Trump administration literally was telling people to read like Camp of the Saints and <laughs> telling people at Breitbart to read V Dare, you know, in the lead up to. Trump's election in order to steamroll the idea of great replacement theory within Republican circles. I mean, he now is working on a campaign. I don't know who it's for, but some Republican that's running for office. I mean, he's still around. And like, he's the one that pushed title 42. 
you know, that's still on the books right now. And, you know, we were talking about this, um, before we started recording, but again, like, I think the, the discussion right now in bourgeois political circles around title 42 again is really telling because the, the Republican side is saying, Oh, the Democrats are like allowing millions of people to cross the border and Biden just bussing them in. But in reality, there was an article that came about, came out about this in the Washington Post. They were saying how the Democrats want to get rid of Title 42, not because it's this horrible nativist piece of legislation that's promoted by a literal white nationalist in the Trump administration. They want to get rid of it because I know Title 42, if you're caught while crossing the border to apply for asylum, you can't be criminalized. You just get sent back over the border. They want to criminalize it more so. They want people to, to be sent to detention facilities. And actually right now, Biden is making room for 20,000 more children, migrant children, because they're getting ready to get rid of Title 42. So they want to beef up the amount of space they have in detention facilities. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. again, like that's, that's the, <laughs> That's the trajectory of the discourse, you know? It's like, do we want this, like, obscene wall or do we want this, like, smart wall that's, you know, ready for the future that's – I think that's what's more scary, too, is that in a lot of ways, the Democrats are smarter about how they want to carry this uh-huh. out because they envision, you know, what's going to happen in 20 years when we have tens of millions of climate refugees or people that continue to flee – Places that the United States has meddled in and their economies have collapsed because of neoliberalism. And they're trying to come to the United States to just to keep their lives going. And they want this massive technological, quote, (laughs) smart wall, as opposed Mm -hmm. to some like, you know, stupid thing that Trump wants to build that people can actually (laughs) get around, you know? I remember the biggest complaint from the Democrats is that the Republicans aren't nice to them anymore. Right. Um, <laughs> yes. Joe Biden is yeah. lamenting the fact that back in the day when they had, quote unquote, real segregationists, at least they had lunch <laughs> together. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is talking about how she wishes there was a real strong Republican Party. So these, uh, you know, these folks, just their ideas, like you said, they 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 consider themselves to be to be the more sophisticated cousins uh, um, and that they're sort of. You know, as I, I think uh, my language, not theirs, but what I think they would use is that their dumber cousins, country cousins don't know how to run a country. Um, and so they should just let us have it or let us run it. And then we'll make sure everybody prospers, uh, in terms of the elite or the, the folks who they agree with, um, and the capitalist class. Uh, but if we do it the way the Republicans are going to do it, they're going to cause, uh, war and, and they're going to do it in a dumb way and, and all that kind of stuff. Their biggest complaint isn't that Republicans are, are, are hard right. Their biggest complaint is how they, uh, institute policies. And, mm-hmm. you know, we see that because it took, as Biden, when he came into office, continued on with a lot of the Trump policies. He didn't right away, uh, uh, cross out a lot of those both nationally and internationally. Um, he kept a lot of those policies going. Um, and so the differences between them, although I consider some of those differences real, I don't consider them to be sharp enough differences to distinguish enough between the two parties to think that the Democrats have any desire whatsoever uh, to uplift the working class and poor people in this country and put them in a position of power. Yeah, well, and I think we, we saw that in the speech, right? So, like, <laughs> the thing I took away from the speech, we were talking a bit about this before, um, is nothing very specifically. He didn't say anything. He said what he says all the time. And then, you know, kind of put 
put uh, the cherry on the top by saying, oh, yeah, by the way, we just need more laws <laughs> and cops. <laughs> this will all make this all go away. Right. Like, let's use an institution which is grounded in racist colonialism to end the latent effects of overt racist colonialism. Um, it makes no sense. But in a lot of ways, it's very in line with what the Democrats do. And like you, you were just saying this, right, like they're in some ways better at policing. They're better at being imperialist. They're better mm-hmm. at being capitalist because they do it in ways which pay lip service to the problems that are being created and do it in ways which allow for stability to persist, right? Mm-hmm. They don't rock the boat. They don't shake anything up. And that's literally ever since Bill Clinton, the entire goal of the Democratic Party is to keep things functioning as smoothly as possible. Um, what, uh, you know, like the way that people in my family have said this in, in the recent past has been things like, yeah, if the Republicans keep staying in power, they're going to see what a class war looks like, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're going to crush everyone's unions and, you know, militarize the police. And, you know, what happened in 2020 will look like a rehearsal for what will happen much later if this, if things continue to go this way. And Democrats are really, really effective at kind of pulling that back, right? We see that with the rhetoric around community policing, right? Which is, mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes, the police drafting people to be informants on their neighbors, right? And then calling that an outreach strategy. Um, It it is counterinsurgency in the David Petraeus Iraq kind of model. And the thing that's really important about that, and and I I want all of us to think about some of the parallels here, but the thing that's really important about David Petraeus-style counterinsurgency is this idea that the target is the population, right? And this is said this way in the counterinsurgency manual, bunch of different places, but the targets of the population, what that means is essentially what you need to do is you need to be able to occupy space in a way that's going to allow for stability to exist. And the way that you do that is by, as they say, you know, finding people that are willing to collaborate with you and giving them benefits, right? Mm -hmm. We were talking about earlier, like liberal activists and democratic run cities and city hall positions, right? It's really similar in this way in that the Sons of Iraq program in Iraq, for example, was about taking former insurgents and paying them to fight other insurgents, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and all of that is meant to sort of de-escalate conflict, right? And in the service of maintaining the stability of occupation, yes. that is almost entirely the Democratic Party's approach to border security, policing, mm-hmm. the economy, so on, so on, is let's preserve stability in such a way that it doesn't create the actual side effects of that of that stability, right? Let's have capitalism without all the labor strife. Mm-hmm. Let's have policing without all the racism, right? Like this seems to be their goal. Um, I think what they're missing in all of this is that increasingly a lot of people, especially younger people, are starting to notice things like America is an inherently racist colonial project and the only way to extract that core out of the American political landscape is to destroy the entire political project. Mm -hmm. There's no way to extricate it from the American political project without destroying the entire project. That's becoming a lot more clear, I think, to a lot of people. And the Democrats have no way to address anything like that. Yeah, I think you're completely correct on it. I, I, I think that's a spot on analysis. And we see it in organizing where, uh, again, the idea is to reshift organizing to make it safe. Right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we they take radical language and ideas and put it now uh, within sort of a, a, a liberal idea or project, fund it, 
um, and connected it to voting for Democrats. And, you know, that's the way movements have been captured probably again over the last 30, 40 years is the, the hammer approach of destroying radical and left movements, which took place obviously in the 60s and 70s and even upwards into the 80s. Um, and then what's left is a voting rights movement, uh, a civil rights movement. And even though there's some conflict with it and some pushback, they would rather work with that crowd uh, because that crowd can be, i.e., brought off. That crowd, they know that their role is to bring people into the electoral system to vote for Democrats. Um, and they kill off or attempt to kill off any radical insurgency, which challenges the whole thing. That is the Democrats part of what the Democrats consider to be good politics in terms of controlling issues of class and race, whereas the Republicans, like you said, would just say, let's just wipe them all out. And again, it's not that the Democrats are opposed to doing things which are insurgent and, and, uh, uh, let's say having more directed targets. Um, and if push comes to the shove, they'll do more than that, of course, but they like to, they like to think of themselves as first, we can we can work with them by buying them off and setting up these other areas for folks to get uh, to get some rewards, to get highlighted, to get spotlighted, and to feel part of the system. Um, but if that doesn't work, then we always also will, will resort to the stick as opposed to um, uh, as opposed to something else. Regardless of what president is in power, the security state is still going to go after black liberation movements, anarchists, the left. You know. Water protectors, you know, they're going, they're going to go after the social movements that are actually challenging power and capital. And they're going to see the insurgent far right as potential pieces that they can use against that at times, you know, whether that's now or whether that's, you know, in Greensboro. Um, and that's not going to change, you know, regardless of if, if Biden talks about white supremacy, you know, that just is baked into, how this system is run. And I just still see a lot of people, even a lot of progressives talking about like laws around like domestic terrorism or something like that, which would come back exponentially on social movements from below more so than the far right. Yeah. We've gotten to a point where uh, there's an activist class. That's a comfortable class. And the activism is seen as a career, uh, uh, an opportunity to get close to the elite, to be your own version of an elite um, that gets called upon to come to the White House or you get to go to the Grammys or you get to go to the Oscars. I mean, there's a certain elitism uh, that's probably always been there, but it's it's reached a point where you can capture these movements because you offer them a place within a sort of elite establishment by, you know, again, giving them magazine covers, having nice stories written about you in the New York Times as a leader, uh, getting resources to start your own podcast and make billions of dollars and so forth. So I, I think there's a movement capture that's, t- that's taking place. Again, it's largely run by the, the, the more liberal establishment because, again, as we stated earlier, they think they know better and they know how to um, how to run something to keep it functional and stable so that uh, a capitalist economy can continue to function. Uh, and they think their Republican cousins just go way too far in the discipline that's needed to be meted out at times um, uh, to keep the society under elite hands. We've been talking for like an hour. Do you want to end by uh, plugging anything or 
you know, the organization is community movement builders. Uh, as we stated earlier, we do a lot of grassroots organizing. Um, we have a couple of additional rallies and demonstrations coming up. We're hitting hard on Cop City. So, you know, I, guess, I think the best social media for us, particularly for our political work, is our Twitter account at Community Movement Builders. And so if you want to know what we're doing, uh, if you want to see what's happening, particularly here in Atlanta in terms of movement politics, follow us or watch us um, and figure out how to support. And, and we can figure out how to support y'all too. This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.